There are a lot of people that are confused when it comes to religion. In the name of Christ, great atrocities have been accomplished. During the Crusades, the church promised plenary indulgence to anybody who would engage in the Crusades for the church. Now, if you don't know what plenary indulgence is, it is simply the ability to bypass purgatory and go straight to heaven. Millions of people signed up. And between one and nine million people died in the Crusades. They're not exactly sure how many. But there's a lot of religious confusion out there. Now, most religious confusion boils down to a misunderstanding of God and a misunderstanding of God's will. Millions of people today believe that God is love. God is love. And because of that limited understanding of God... They do nothing to prepare for the day that they'll meet Him. And regretfully, those individuals will die lost. God is love, but it does not justify man ignoring Him or disobeying Him. Millions of people believe stories of non-Christians having near-death experiences or after-death experiences or out-of-body experiences. Now, these individuals went through their whole life and never acknowledged Jesus, never followed Him, never went to church, never did anything. But then when they have these afterlife experiences or these near-death experiences, they see the great light and they're welcomed in. I'll remind you that Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by Me. So I don't know exactly why and what they're experiencing, but if they didn't follow Jesus before that near-death experience, it wasn't heaven. Millions and millions of people believe that as long as they're good and their good works outweigh their bad works, they're going to get into heaven. Sort of this scale thing. But Ephesians 2, verses 8 and verse 9 says, For by grace are you saved through faith. And that not of yourself, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Jesus said in Luke the 17th chapter and verse 10, So likewise, when you have done all those things which are commanded you, say we are unprofitable servants. We have done that which was our duty to do. Now I grant that works is connected to our response in Christianity, but we will not be saved by our Good works outweighing our bad works. Most religious confusion is due to a misunderstanding of God and a misunderstanding of God's will. So we are going back to the basics. The first leg of that journey has been a multi-part lesson in understanding God. Last week we had part one and we dealt with the fact that God is incomprehensible. God is eternal. God is triune and God is creator. Now, I hope that you picked up on something last week. When I was explaining the attributes of God, I said God is, not God has. It's important when we attempt to understand a God that we understand all His attributes that we discuss. They are not something that God has. They are something that God is. For instance, God is eternal. God is creator. God is infinite. God is omnipotent. So in our effort to understand God today, we must see that God is 
a number of things. Now, we've seen the incomprehensible, the eternal, the triune, the creator today. As we continue in our trying to understand God, we must understand that God is sovereign. God is absolutely sovereign. Now, the word sovereign means one with complete and total rule. The Bible points to this truth over and over again. Job 23 and verse 13 says, He is singular and sovereign. Who can argue with Him? He does what He wants when He wants to. Job 25 and verse 2, God is sovereign. God is fearsome. Everything in the cosmos fits and works in His plan. Daniel 4 and verse 3, Daniel said, His mercies are staggering. His wonders are surprising. His kingdom lasts and lasts. His sovereign rule goes on forever. The fact that God is sovereign is very clear within Scripture. Yet some have disputed if God possesses absolute sovereignty. Now this debate actually goes all the way back to the 17th century. It may actually go further than that. Tozer puts it like this. Another real problem created by the doctrine of divine sovereignty has to do with the will of man. If God rules His universe by His sovereign decrees, how is it possible for man to exercise free choice? And if He cannot exercise freedom of choice, how can He be held responsible for His conduct? So, absolute sovereignty? Is that something that God actually has? Because there seems to be a little bit of a problem. Absolute sovereignty takes issue with free will, but it also takes issue with the existence of evil. If God is sovereign, in charge of everything, and if God is omnipotent, He has all power and capable of stopping evil, then how does evil exist? So absolute sovereignty presents at least two questions, two problems. The free will of man and the existence of evil. Now, the question we have to ask, is God absolutely sovereign or are there things beyond God's control? If there are things outside of God's control, then He is limited. And if God is limited, then He is not absolutely sovereign. Right? That sounds like a logical conclusion. How do we solve these problems? I believe that understanding free will, the free will of man, answers the existence of evil. Tozer put it best, God's sovereignly decreed that man should be free to exercise moral choice. And man from the beginning has fulfilled that decree by making his choice between good and evil. When he chooses to do evil, he does not thereby countervail the sovereign will of God, but fulfills it. Inasmuch as the eternal decree decided not which choice the man would make, but that he should be free to make it. If in his absolute freedom God has willed to give man limited freedom, who is there to stay his hand or say, what doest thou? Man's will is free because God is sovereign. A God less than sovereign would not bestow moral freedom upon his creatures. He would be afraid to do so. So God in his absolute sovereignty decreed that man should have free will. Now man exercised his free will 
and chose to do evil. Hence, evil entered into the creation as a result of man, not a result of God. Now, some would argue that God should have stopped that evil before it entered into His creation. Let me get you to think about something. If God, in His absolute sovereignty, decreed the man to have free will, and then stepped in and stopped man from choosing evil, that would have stripped away man's free will, thus defeating God's sovereign decree that man should have free will. That sounds like a circular argument. It's not. In other words, if God would have stepped into the Garden of Eden and said, whoa, whoa, let's stop the whole show here. Man, you're not going to make this mistake. I'm not going to let you make this mistake. And He would have stopped everything. He would have taken away man's free will. And God's sovereign decree that man should have free choice would have been defeated by God Himself. He wouldn't do that. The bottom line is God is absolutely sovereign. Uh, Tozer uses the illustration that an ocean liner leaves New York, it's bound for Liverpool. The powers that be have set its course and its destination, its time of departure, its time of arrival. The passengers that are on board that steam liner can move about and do as they please. They can sit in the sun, they can listen to music, they can go to the buffet, they can do whatever they want to do. And yet the whole time the steam liner is moving toward its appointed destination. Freedom and sovereignty are present on the same ship. And there is no conflict and no contradiction. God is in control of the ship. Tozer said the mighty liner of God's sovereign design keeps its steady course over the sea of history. God moves undisturbed and unhindered toward the fulfillment of those eternal purposes which He purposed in Christ Jesus before the world began. We do not know all that is included in those purposes, but enough has been disclosed to furnish us with a broad outline of the things to come and to give us good hope and a firm assurance of future well-being. Toward all this, God is moving with infinite wisdom and perfect precision of action. No one can dissuade Him from His purposes. Nothing can turn Him aside from His plans. Since He is omniscient, there can be no unforeseen circumstances, no accidents. As He is sovereign, there can be no countermanded orders, no breakdown in authority. And as He is omnipotent, there can be no want of power to achieve His chosen ends. God is sufficient unto Himself in all of these things. Tozer's right. God is absolutely sovereign. Daniel 4, 34, God who lives forever, His sovereign rule lasts and lasts. His kingdom never declines and falls. Revelation, the 11th chapter and verse 17, those beings in heaven, human and angel, sing, we give you praise, O Lord God, ruler of all, who is and who was, because you have taken up your great power and are ruling your kingdom. Revelation 15 and verse 3, and they gave the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, great and full of wonder are your works, O Lord God, ruler of all, true and full of righteousness are your ways, eternal King. Now you may ask the question, how is all this really relevant to me in my life? Let me tell you something. It is the most relevant thing in your life, whether you recognize it or whether you do not. It's His boat. Now you can busy yourself rearranging all the chairs on the deck of the boat. You can sit in the sunlight of the entertainment this world has to offer and bask in it. 
You can enjoy all the sights and watch the waves. Enjoy all that this life throws in your direction. You may even be a mean person or a cruel person who's riding the boat and doing wrong to others and thinking that it's your boat. You can do whatever you want to do. Or you might be an individual who has realized that it's God's boat. That you are en route to a destination. You have accepted Him and you have yielded your will to Him and you're trying to help other people on the boat along the way. But the boat will reach its destination and everyone will disembark the ship. Some will be able to get off on the right side of the boat. It will be great. But most people will have to disembark on the left side of the boat, which will be a nightmare. Now, perhaps I've taken that analogy a little too far, but I think you get my point. He is King of kings. He is Lord of lords. He is sovereign God. It is His world. His ship. And you will reach the destination. But not only do we need to understand that God is sovereign, we must also understand that God is infinite. Now, the finite understanding the infinite is difficult at best. Tozer puts it like this. Of all that can be thought or said about God, His infinitude is the most difficult to grasp. Even to try to conceive of it would appear to be self-contradictory. For such conceptualization requires us to undertake something which we know at the outset we can never accomplish, yet we must try. For the Holy Scriptures teach us that God is infinite, and if we accept His other attributes, we must of necessity accept this one too. Infinitude, of course, means limitlessness, and it is obviously impossible for a limited mind to grasp the unlimited. All the great theologians of time readily and quickly admit the infinity of God is beyond our greatest and loftiest thoughts. So how do we get a grip on the infinitude of God? How do we get a grip on the infinite? I'm going to go this route. Light travels at 186,000 miles per second. 186,000 miles per second. That is 700 million miles per hour. That means light that is reflected off the moon reaches this earth in 1.2 seconds. Light from the sun to the earth takes 8 minutes and 19 seconds. From the sun to the edge of the solar system, light will travel in less than 6 hours. Light from our sun will go to the nearest star in 4.3 years. Remember, 700 million miles per hour. Light will cross this galaxy where we live in 100,000 years. It will travel across the known universe at 700 million miles per hour. It will take it 13.7 billion years. Now, I know all of that just went, you know. I've got a clip. So, Bryce. We are going to travel at the speed of light departing our own star on a trip across the cosmos. Our imaginary journey begins at midnight on January 1st. Let's assume we're traveling at the speed of 186,000 miles per second. We quickly pass the planet Mercury, and then Venus, and span the 93 million miles that separate the Earth from the Sun 
in just eight minutes and 19 seconds. We continue past the red planet of Mars. And then the gas giant planet Jupiter and its moons. Saturn comes into view. Uranus. Neptune. Finally, after five hours and 31 minutes, we pass Pluto. Our journey has taken us over 3.5 billion miles to the outer limits of our solar system, and it's still January 1st. Now we travel in a direction perpendicular to our galaxy. Behind us, eight planets and the sun quickly vanish. The emptiness of space is broken only by the light of stars so distant they don't yet appear to move. A year passes, then two years, three years, four. Finally, on April the 19th of the fifth year, we reach the star Alpha Centauri A, the closest star to our solar system. We have traveled more than 25 trillion miles and our journey has scarcely begun. We are now 10 light years out from our sun. Now, 100 years from the sun, gas and nebular material start to fill our view. We have been traveling for 1,000 years. The galaxy is nearly in full view. But it is not until we have traveled at the speed of light for 100,000 years that we can see the entire spiral of the Milky Way. From here on, each point of light we see is no longer an individual star, but an entire galaxy. Five million years have passed. The Milky Way and the 30 galaxies known as the local group slowly vanish into the distance. The best estimates suggest that there are at least 70,000 million, million, million stars in the universe. 50 million light years out, we encountered the large Berger cluster containing over 2,000 galaxies. And so it goes as our journey continues to take us deeper into the cosmos. billion years have passed. Five billion years have passed. Finally, after ten billion years, we decelerate and pause to observe a theoretical view of the universe. Countless billions of galaxies are no more than a microdotnet. There are no words to describe how big the universe is. With countless stars and galaxies, we can only imagine what is out there. Solomon said, but will God really dwell on earth? The heavens, even the highest heavens, cannot contain you, how much less this temple I have built. God is infinite. Now, I used time, space, and matter to try to get us to at least somehow comprehend the vastness of the universe He has created. Last week we talked about His 
eternality. Trying to understand that goes beyond us. We need to take this vast universe that seems almost infinite and somehow translate that over to God and who God is. We're not talking about space and time and matter. We're talking about God Himself. God is infinite in everything. He is infinite in love. He is infinite in justice. He is infinite in goodness. He is infinite in holiness. Now, I use stuff to imagine that infinity, but you could take a billion, billion, billion of those galaxies and stack them on top of one another. And God would still be an infinity bigger. You see, it's impossible for us to completely understand the infinity of God. Though we may understand the Word and its meaning, we will never comprehend an infinite God. God is not limited by space. God is not limited by time. God is not limited by matter. He is not limited by place or knowledge or power. God is not limited by anything. So how is that relevant? Well, I don't know if you paid close attention, but when you consider the size of the universe, and we are but a speck of dust riding on a speck of dust in a solar system that compared to the universe is a speck of dust, we should at least in some way realize, as the psalmist did, we are nothing. Psalms 8, verse 3 and verse 4. When I see your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have put in their places, what is man that you keep him in mind? The son of man that you take him into account. How is it relevant? An infinite God gave His infinite Son to suffer infinite justice, to demonstrate infinite love, To rescue you from an infinite eternity. Infinitely separated from His infinite blessings in an infinite heaven. That's why it's relevant. The question is, will you see it here? On this side of eternity? And change your life? Or will you miss it here? And encounter His infinitude? On the other side. When it's too late to make any changes. The last point we need to understand about God's character is God is transcendent. Now, when we talk about transcendence, we're talking about that which exists above and is independent from. To surpass, to supersede, to be superior, to be supreme. Tozer put it this way. And again, if you've never read A.W. Tozer and you want to try to understand God, let me encourage you. To do so, Tozer said, We must not think of God as highest in an ascending order of being, starting with the single cell and going up from the fish to the bird to the animal to man to angel to cherub to God. This would be to grant God eminence, even preeminence. But that is not enough. We must grant Him transcendence in the fullest meaning of that word. Forever God stands apart in light unapproachable. 
He is as high above the archangel as above a worm. For a gulf that separates the archangel from the worm is but finite. While the gulf between God and the archangel is infinite. The worm and the archangel, though far removed from each order in the scale of created things, are nevertheless one in that they are alike created. They both belong in the category of that which is not God and are separated from God by infinitude itself. God is transcendent. He is above and beyond all of creation. He sits outside the space and time that you and I know. Isaiah 57 verse 15 says, For thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. Austin Klein said, A transcendent God is one who is beyond perception, independent of the universe, and wholly other when compared to us. God's transcendence means that He doesn't think like us. Isaiah 55, verse 8 and verse 9, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Because God is transcendent, He does not think like us. He does not act like us. Jesus came into this world to grant us a picture of God to help us relate to God. In John the 14th chapter, verse 8 and verse 9, Philip said unto Him, Lord, show us the Father and it will suffice us. Jesus saith unto him, Have I been with you so long that yet you have not known Me, Philip? He that hath seen Me hath seen the Father. Jesus wanted us to know that if we've seen Him, we've seen what the Father is like. Jesus, God, the second person of the Godhead, was tempted in the flesh just like you and I are, but He did not act like we act. Hebrews 4 and verse 15 says, We have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the filling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like we are, yet without sin. God being transcendent means that He doesn't think like we think. He doesn't act like we act, and He doesn't speak like we speak. Again, Jesus spoke words that had never been heard, and He said them in such a way that they would never be forgotten. Matthew records in Matthew 13, verse 35, that Jesus fulfilled a prophecy saying, I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things which have been kept secret from the foundation of the world. Jesus Himself in Matthew 24, and verse 35, said, Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. He doesn't speak like we speak. He doesn't act like we act. He doesn't think like we think. He is transcendent. The Bible points to His transcendence. The psalmist said in Psalms 102, 25-27, Of old hast thou laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of thy hands. They shall perish, but thou shalt endure. Yea, all of them shall wax old like a garment. As a vesture shalt thou change them, and they shall be changed. But thou art the same, thy years have no end. Isaiah 42 and verse 5, Thus saith God the Lord, He that created the heavens and stretched them out, He that spread forth the earth, and that which cometh out of it, He that giveth breath unto the people upon it, and the Spirit to them that walk therein. How does the transcendence of God affect you? How does it affect me? Well, you can run, but you can't hide. Now, I, I don't know what movie that came out of. I was talking to someone last week, and they said first three things go when you get older. First thing is your 
your memory. The second thing is your knees, and I, I, I can't remember the third one, but anyway, you can run, but you can't hide. I know it comes out of a movie somewhere. And that's what it boils down to when we think of the transcendence of God. Jeremiah 23 and verse 24 says, Can any hide himself in secret places that I shall not see him, saith the Lord? Do not I fill heaven and earth, saith the Lord? Now some of these verses may apply to His omnipresence and His omniscience, and that's fine. We'll deal with them again when we get to those parts of God in our continued study. But the psalmist said in Psalms 139, 5-9, that thou hast beset me behind and before and laid thine hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, I cannot attain unto it. Whither shall I go from thy spirit? Or whither shall I flee from thy presence? If I ascend up into heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. Psalms 139, 1-4. God, you know when I leave and when I get back, I'm never out of your sight. You know everything I'm going to say before I start the first sentence. How does the transcendence of God affect you? His transcendence is relevant because it relates directly to His omniscience and His omnipresence. And the fact that you will one day stand before Him and be judged by Him. And let me tell you something. You're not going to be able to talk your way around Him. You see, He knows your thoughts before you think them. He knows your words before you speak them. He knows your actions before you perform them. You will stand before a transcendent judge who is not influenced by politics or the whims of men. He is not a respecter of persons. And you will answer for your life. The question, how will this sovereign, infinite, and transcendent judge of the universe, how will he judge you? That's the question. God in His sovereignty has given you the right to choose how you will live your life. But how you live your life will invoke His judgment. Which side of the boat are you going to get off of? God in His sovereignty has given you the power to make that choice.